The world is in a climate crisis, and it's the next generation that will face the brunt of its problems. I'm Gemma Milne, and I'm the host of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. In our third series, we are asking what physics can offer in tackling climate issues. I'm joined by leading physicists and researchers who explain the issues that the elements of our planet are facing, as well as how the latest research and innovations are helping find solutions. The whole series is available now. Just search Looking Glass wherever you're listening. This week's episode includes graphic descriptions of child murder and sexual abuse. It will not be for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On August 19th, 1992, the sleepy little town of Bargo, New South Wales, Australia, would lose its innocence. Nine-year-old Ebony Simpson would be abducted on the short 10-minute walk from her school bus to her home. The cruel and senseless manner of her death at the hands of a brutal psychopath shocked an entire country and would mark only one of four cases in Australian history where the offender would have their file stamped never to be released. This is Ebony's story. She was so beautiful, I just knew somebody had taken her. I can't believe that another human being would do that to a little girl or any child. Nine-year-old Ebony Simpson has vanished without a trace whilst walking home from school. There's no reason for her not to have come home. You can only assume that something's happened. It's everybody's nightmare. Um, A parent's nightmare, their child being abducted. Ebony, if you're out there, darling, and if you can get home, get home or give us a ring. It's pretty much the worst case scenario. The fate of the schoolgirl will unfold in the most shocking way. He knew where she was all the time. He joined the search party. All that time we were looking for Ebony and the killer's car is a few yards away. I hadn't heard something as callous as being on the search party to cover your tracks. It just it disgusts me 20 years later. Ebony Jane Simpson was born December 22nd, 1982 to parents Christine and Peter Simpson. Ebony would be the perfect addition to complete their family. The couple already had two boys, Zachary and Tasman, who immediately fell in love with their baby sister and were extremely protective over her. She was the apple of everyone's eye. Christine and Peter moved from Sydney to Bargo, New South Wales in the late 1970s. They bought an old farmhouse on a large property. They wanted to raise their family in the country for a simpler and better life away from the dangers of the big city. Embargo was your stereotypical small country town. It is tiny, and in 1992 it had a population of less than 3,000. There is and was no crime. Embargo is very safe. It's the kind of little country town where you don't need to lock your doors at night, and everyone knows everyone. Bargo is located off the Hume Highway, around 100 kilometres or 62 miles southwest of Sydney, New South Wales. The town itself is rural, with large properties. Plenty of room for kids to run around and explore. Little did Christine and Peter know that their idyllic farm lifestyle would home a brutal child murderer, who would change their lives forever. In 1992, Ebony was nine years old and had grown into a beautiful, loving and affectionate little girl. 
She had a bunch of friends at school where she was known as bubbly, smart and responsible. Ebony was well-liked and respected by her fellow students and teachers. Wednesday, August 19th, 1992. The day started out like any other day for the busy family. The three Simpson children went off to school. Peter had work and Christine was busy running chores. Normally, the boys and Ebony would catch the bus home. The boys would walk the short walk home whilst Christine would drive down to the bus stop and pick Ebony up. However, on this day... Christine was running late trying to sort out some insurance. She asked one of Ebony's older brothers to meet her at the bus stop and walk her home. But then his bus ran late, and when he saw her, she wasn't at the bus stop waiting, he assumed she walked home by herself. Christine would say in the Crimes That Shook Australia documentary interview, and I will link this interview in the Facebook group. Seeing Christine's pain and grief, it's palpable. It completely breaks my heart. It is obvious that the passage of time has not lessened her grief, and she could not be blamed for this. I don't know how you recover from something like this. She is to be commended for what she does achieve, but I am getting ahead of myself here. So Christine would arrive home not long after this, and she would say in her Crimes That Shook Australia documentary interview that she knew immediately something was wrong. Ebony's shoes weren't on the porch and her little pink school bag wasn't discarded by the door. She knew in an instant that Ebony had not made it home. Christine called her husband Peter in a panic to come home. She searched the house entirely and then went to the bus stop on the corner of Bargo and Arena Roads in the hopes her son had missed her somehow along the way. She ran to the neighbour's house because maybe Ebony got scared – The day before, the police went to Ebony's school for a stranger danger talk, and this talk unsettled Ebony somewhat. So much so, mother and daughter had a talk about it before Ebony would go to sleep. Because of this, maybe Ebony got spooked when no one was there, and she went to her neighbours to wait for Christine. This was when the neighbour would tell Christine they'd actually seen Ebony exiting the school bus on her own. This wasn't unusual. Again, small town, houses sparsely situated. Ebony was the only child from her school that caught the bus in her street. The neighbour saw Ebony walk towards her home, which was only about a kilometre or a little more than half a mile away. She was heading towards a car, a yellow Mazda that seemed broken down. And with that, with a growing sense of dread building in her stomach, Christine raced back home where Peter reported their daughter missing to police. At that time, there's two tasks, and we had to separate that pretty early on. There's a search for Ebony, and there's also a criminal investigation, both taking place at the same time. So the search was set up as a grid pattern for several kilometres around where she was last seen. Homes and paddocks, dams, bush... I still remember what's going through my mind. The priority is just to find her and find her alive. The whole town was volunteering to come and help. Everybody who, who um, was anybody, pretty much, was just was out there looking, searching. So that had to be coordinated because you couldn't just have people running around everywhere. 
police are looking for her, everybody's searching for her. I mean, helicopters were flying above, you know, with sensor lights on them. Within an hour of Ebony last being seen by the neighbour, police were on the scene and the search had commenced. That night, 100 police officers and more than 200 volunteers searched painstakingly in a grid pattern, going over neighbours' properties, paddocks, dams and bush. Helicopters with sensor lights, aided by providing light in the rapidly decreasing temperatures. The urgency becoming more and more apparent as police feared the young girl would not survive out in the elements overnight. And the search would continue this way, non-stop for two days. Volunteers and police working in shifts to ensure every possible place Ebony could be was searched multiple times. As the local police focused on the ground search for Ebony, missing person unit detectives would interview neighbours on what they had seen that afternoon, if anything strange stood out to them and if they had seen the missing nine-year-old. Two of the Simpsons' neighbour boys, aged 13 and 15, they were driving home from school with their mother when they saw Ebony as they drove past. They knew Ebony, so they waved and she waved back heading towards her home, but also towards a car, just as the other neighbour told Christine. But in this case, these boys were car enthusiasts and could describe this car in great detail, that the car was a Mazda 808 sedan, that the exhaust must have been broken because there were smoky burn marks at the back, and there was a dodgy repair job with mismatched yellow paint. The boys could even name the paint colour as Orca Yellow. This gave detectives an idea. They went back to Christine and asked her if she remembered seeing anything she considered suspicious. Had she seen a car in the area that didn't quite belong or she had never seen before? One car in particular came immediately to mind. Christine remembered seeing a car three days earlier while driving to pick up Ebony from school. Quote, I remember seeing a guy in a broken-down car with its bonnet open the other way around, which is different from other cars. I remember looking at him and thinking, I'll pick Ebony up and then I'll come back around and see if I can help him. Unquote. But when Christine returned, the man and the car were gone. Detectives knew they had to find this car. Christine was able to give a detailed description of the driver as well, and a composite was made up of their person of interest. A white man, quite thin, around 169 centimetres tall or 5 foot 5, shoulder-length dirty blonde hair, and he was wearing all black clothing. Detectives would give this composite and vehicle description to the local police, and as luck would have it, they had seen this car. It was parked out the front of the Simpson home, along with the other volunteer searchers. Its owner had been one of the volunteers helping in the search for Ebony. He was 29-year-old Andrew Peter Garforth. Garforth was very cooperative by allowing police to search his car. He stated he was volunteering as his common-law wife had encouraged him to go to help, that one of his two sons were around the same age as Ebony and he wanted to help. Police wanted to get a better look at his car and they knew they needed to get Garforth away from it to do so. Police didn't need to worry though because Garforth was very happy to join them at the police station for further questioning. 
Garforth would give several versions of events of where he was that afternoon. But after less than 30 minutes of questioning, he would admit to the horrors that would go on to haunt investigators almost 30 years later. The world is in a climate crisis, and it's the next generation that will face the brunt of its problems. I'm Gemma Milne, and I'm the host of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. In our third series, we are asking what physics can offer in tackling climate issues. I'm joined by leading physicists and researchers who explain the issues that the elements of our planet are facing, as well as how the latest research and innovations are helping find solutions. The whole series is available now. Just search Looking Glass wherever you're listening. Andrew Peter Garforth, his wife and two young sons, had been relocated from Western Australia by charity St Vincent de Paul to Bargo only five weeks prior. He lived only three kilometres or just less than two miles from the Simpson family home. He had seen the pretty blonde girl in town and had become infatuated with her, to a point where he began following her routine. He knew what school Ebony went to and what bus she took, He knew the bus route and that her mother would pick her up and drop her off from the bus stop each school day. He knew where they lived and where the family shopped. He stalked Ebony and her family for weeks. He would wait near their home in his car, waiting for his opportunity to put his sick plan into action. As he had most days for the past week, Garforth parked his yellow Mazda 808 sedan halfway between the bus stop on the corner of Bargo and Arena Roads and the Simpson family home. He had his preparation down to a fine art. He knew what time the bus would arrive. He opened both the trunk and the bonnet of his car and got out some oil, ready to play the frustrated car owner whose car had broken down. At around 3.30pm, Ebony's school bus had arrived and with noticing no one was there to pick her up, she wasn't overly concerned, and started the ten-minute walk home. Ebony would have seen the man looking over his car with both his bonnet and trunk open. She would have noticed him, but she wouldn't have spoken to him, especially not after the police gave her class the stranger danger talk the day before. Ebony was responsible, and she knew not to talk to strangers. As Ebony got to the rear of the car, Garforth took this opportunity to grab the nine-year-old, and he threw her roughly into the trunk. He quickly closed the trunk and the hood of the car and drove away. When forensically examined, police would find Ebony's hair and scratch marks on the inside of the trunk, where Ebony had desperately fought to escape her prison while she was being driven to her death. Garforth would drive along a bush road towards a remote dam near Wirrumbira Sanctuary. He would open the trunk and pull Ebony out, who was crying and begging the man to let her go home to her mum. He tied her arms behind her back with a spare speaker wire he had brought with him, and then he tied her legs together. He would sexually abuse her several times, and while Ebony lie in the dirt, whimpering in pain, Garforth would fill her little pink school backpack with rocks before fixing it to Ebony's back. He then picked up the broken and distraught child and threw her into the murky, freezing waters of the dam. Garforth would allegedly stand there for a few moments while Ebony begged for help while she fought for her life. Quote, 
She shouted help. I walked away. When I left, she was trying to get back to the bank. I believed she could have possibly drowned. Unquote. The medical examiner would later determine that Ebony would have drowned within four minutes, her official cause of death being due to asphyxiation. And even if she had managed to somehow get to the banks of the dam, she would have died from exposure slowly due to the very low temperatures that night. Not that she could have. Due to the way Garforth restrained her arms and legs, swimming to the bank would have been near impossible. Garforth would go into minute detail of what happened to Ebony. He spoke calmly with little emotion, showing no sign of remorse in his confession or even later on during his time in court. The detectives were horrified at what they were hearing. There is even footage out there of Garforth actively demonstrating how he threw Ebony into the dam. And at 12.45am on Friday, August 21st, 1992... Garforth would take the police to where they would find Ebony's body. We walked up to the dam and it's something that sticks with me forever and I get goosebumps talking about it is walking up over the top of the lip of the dam and seeing the pink lunchbox floating on the water and the water was like as still as still. No wind, no movement at all. It was just like glass. As soon as I saw that, I knew she was in there and we couldn't see her on the banks or anything like that and yeah that was probably it was disappointing but mind you with the temperatures in the area at that particular time um, she would probably wouldn't have survived anyway if she'd been into the water and then come out she would have been just the exposure probably would have killed her in any case There was no chance that Ebony was still going to be alive because she, there was no sign of her in the, and she was still in the water so they could tell that. She was fr- thrown like, you know, eight to ten metres in. There's no way she could make it and the way she was tied, no way she could make it to the bank. Only an hour later, at around 2am, two young and inexperienced police officers knocked on the Simpsons' front door and they were burdened with the responsibility to tell Peter and Christine their ebony had been found. News these police officers were not equipped to do, and possibly didn't handle the situation with the emotional maturity and understanding they should have. Nothing against them, though. The training was not available at this time, but more on that later. Christine did not want to believe what she was hearing. Quote, I just fell to the floor. I cried and begged to them to let me hold her, that maybe if I held her, I could bring her back to life, Christine was understandably unable to function for months afterwards, I couldn't brush my teeth, I was just a zombie, I just sat and stared, nothing meant anything anymore. All things about life that were so precious had been ripped away from me, unquote. Anita Cobby's parents, Gary and Grace Lynch, would come forward to offer the Simpson family their support. They too had lost their daughter in a brutal murder. On February 2nd, 1986, 26-year-old Anita Cobby was abducted, raped and ultimately murdered by a group of men in Sydney, New South Wales. And they too struggled with finding suitable counselling and support to deal with handling their grief. 
Together, the two families would realise the lack of understanding of the grief they were going through. Together, the Lynches and the Simpsons would go on to form the Homicide Victim Support Group. And this group is incredible. Like with Project Lifesaver in the Ryan Larson case, the Homicide Victim Support Group is only something that I'm learning about now while I was researching Ebony's story, and I cannot rave about them more. They provide counselling and support to families who have lost loved ones in violent crimes. They now have two houses dedicated as both safe havens for families to have their privacy to grieve for their loved one, as well as somewhere for families that are travelling to court hearings to stay while the trial is taking place. Family members of victims of Ivan Malat, the backpacker killer, they stayed at one of these houses during Malat's criminal murder trial. The Homicide Victims Support Group go to the police academies to provide training to new police officers in how to sensitively and appropriately be there for families to inform them they have lost their loved one in the worst way possible. Now, like any other non-for-profit organisation, due to funding there is limited resources and limited opportunity to really get out there and educate the community as well in how to support families grieving or even how to keep themselves safe. If you are able... I strongly encourage you to donate to the Homicide Victims Support Group. I will be donating this month's Patreon earnings to the Homicide Victims Support Group because I believe they are doing amazing things there. I will place links to the Homicide Victims Support Group in the show notes. April 1993, days before the trial was due to begin. Garforth entered a plea of guilty. This would mean the Simpson family would be spared their added grief of a long and dragged out high-profile trial, but they were told to only expect a sentence of 14 to 20 years, with possibility of parole after eight years, something that Garforth would openly gloat about to his wife, that he would see her in 14 years. This is crazy to me that you could brutally and horrifically take an innocent child's life and then be back living your life when they should have been just starting theirs. But Christine and Peter did not accept this possibility and would protest loudly in the media of their distrust of the legal system and discussed that such a lenient sentence could be considered, that the sentence did not fit the crime carried out against their daughter. Whether it was because of this or because common sense took over, Christine and Peter would receive justice for Ebony. The case was described by Supreme Court Judge Justice Newman as being in the worst category, joining only four other cases in New South Wales history. This was mainly because Garforth's calm and emotionless behaviour and that he couldn't explain why he did this or any explanation for his actions. Justice Newman described him as quote-unquote heartless and sentenced him to life imprisonment. Justice Newman stated that because Garforth posed that high of a risk to the community, his case would be marked never to be released. That for the rape and murder of nine-year-old Ebony Simpson, Andrew Peter Garforth would spend the rest of his natural life in prison without the possibility of parole. In handing down the sentence on July 9th, 1993, Justice Newman would say, quote, His crimes fall squarely into the category of the worst type of case. 
His comments about what he expected the girl to do after he threw her tied up into the dam was chilling to the extreme. The indifference to the fate of his victim by the prisoner would appall any civilised human being. His intention was not to cause grievous bodily harm. His intention was to kill. Unquote. December 7, 1994. Garforth's legal team fronted the High Court of New South Wales, applying for special leave to appeal against the sentence of life imprisonment. The defence argued, quote, There was no findings that this applicant would remain dangerous for the rest of his life. There was no finding that he was beyond reform, and this was not a case involving mass murder, unquote. This request would ultimately be denied. Spokesperson for the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions would front the media to reassure the public, quote, There is no other avenue for appeal available to the prisoner. The sentence requires that he is imprisoned for the term of his natural life, unquote. 1995. Garforth would lodge several claims for victims' compensation for alleged assaults in prison. In particular mentioned was in August 1992, while he was awaiting trial. Garforth was attacked by fellow inmates. He was exercising in a locked yard and meant to be alone at the time. But it didn't end up being that way and he was assaulted. The second incident was a year later, in October 1993. And even though he was in protective custody, fellow inmates attacked Garforth again. And due to public outrage that Garforth may receive monetary compensation, both these claims would be denied. July 2015, Andrew Peter Garforth's name would again reach the headlines when the Serious Offenders Review Council downgraded his prisoner status from A2 to B. This would ultimately allow Garforth up to four hours outside time a day, an increase from his previous one-hour allowance. He would also be entitled to apply for such luxuries as a TV in his cell and a sandwich toaster, an opportunity to work in the prison laundry or gardens, and he would be eligible to enrol in courses in prison, including a woodwork program. Now, the Serious Offenders Review Council manages serious offenders, including the killers of Anita Cobby and Janine Balding. So there were fears among victims' groups that this reclassification of Garforth could set a precedent, and they too could apply for their A2 classifications to be reduced. Christine Simpson was enraged by this. She would conduct media interviews protesting the council's decision. Christine would say in one interview with a current affair news program, quote, He needs a plate of beans kicked under the door of his cell and a glass of water. That's all he needs, unquote. Christine would create a successful online petition, collecting more than 30,000 signatures in just 24 hours to have the reclassification revoked. And her efforts were not in vain. The public outrage that followed, and due to Christine's petition, Corrective Services Minister David Elliott stepped in only days later to reverse decision. And he didn't only reverse the council's decision, but he also stripped away any existing privileges Garthorth may have had in his cell in Goulburn jail. Quote, This guy gets nothing. He will die in jail. Unquote. 
Such a move was keeping with what was intended by Justice Newman when he initially sentenced Garforth all those years earlier. Justice Newman would tell the Southern Highland newspaper in 2002, quote, Again, as I noted earlier, his callous and casual comment as to what he expected to happen to his victim as she struggled in the water was chilling to the extreme, unquote. Because of the callousness and emotionless way he murdered little Ebony, it is believed it's unlikely that Ebony was his first and only victim. Garforth has also been considered for the unsolved murder of 19-year-old beauty queen Felicia Marie Wilson. January 10, 1979, Perth, Western Australia. Felicia was walking home from the community health centre where she worked around 4.30pm. She would be abducted, stripped naked and stabbed multiple times before her killer smashed her skull with a 27 kilo or 59 pound block of limestone. Now, unfortunately, the investigation went cold quickly. That was until the early 1990s, when Western Australian detectives received information from their New South Wales counterparts. A man had come to them to report repeated nightmares about Felicia. And while this led nowhere, it did renew interest in the case. And by 1994, New South Wales police had further information about Felicia's death that linked Garforth to the unsolved crime. Most telling was that Garforth lived right by the community health centre at the time of Felicia's murder. Felicia's murder is still under investigation. I think they think when you go to court and come out and then you just get on with your life. Well, it's not like that, you know? There seems to be... Uh, it's... There seems to be a lot of rehabilitation for the perpetrators of crime, but there's no rehabilitation for the victims. In response to her experience, Christine channels her energy into making major changes for victims of crime with the support group. Well, I think I, I took all my anger and turned it into something positive and set up Ebony House, first recovery centre in the world for homicide victims. So I burnt up all my angry energy into positive, you know, and um, I didn't know what else to do with it. Made a lot of changes and very powerful back then. Some good has come out of the ashes of this crime that is right up there for me as one of the worst I have ever had to research. As I mentioned earlier, the Homicide Victim Support Centre has helped countless families and provided essential grief training to police officers. In 1996, the Premier of New South Wales officially opened Ebony House, a place that acts as both a safe haven for families to have their privacy to grieve for their loved one, as well as somewhere for families that are travelling for court hearings to stay while the trial is taking place. And because of Ebony's abduction, a whole new system was introduced at schools to ensure kids are safer at drop-off and pick-up times. The children are now monitored to ensure an approved person is present to retrieve the children in the afternoons. And there is always at least one teacher present at the front gate of the school in the mornings and afternoons to make sure the child gets safely from their parents' car or the school bus into the school and vice versa. The whole country was devastated because of this case, and the effects of Ebony's murder are still felt today, 30 years later. Unfortunately, like we see with so many families who suffer a missing child or a child murdered in such a brutal manner, 
relationships become strained and many fall apart. Sadly, this would be the case with Peter and Christine, and they would separate and later divorce in the years following Ebony's murder. Christine has since remarried, but both her and Peter still remain in the Bargo area, in a desire to stay close to where their daughter will remain in their memories, forever as that happy and bubbly, beautiful nine-year-old girl. If you have your own thoughts on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss any episode, and join the discussion group to share your ideas and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, and on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please share on your social media of choice and rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. This week's episode was researched, written, hosted and produced by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. is in a climate crisis and it's the next generation that will face the brunt of its problems. I'm Gemma Milne and I'm the host of Looking Glass, the podcast from the Institute of Physics. In our third series, we are asking what physics can offer in tackling climate issues. I'm joined by leading physicists and researchers who explain the issues that the elements of our planet are facing, as well as how the latest research and innovations are helping find solutions. The whole series is available now. Just search Looking Glass wherever you're listening.